Welcome. This is great. I don't think we've ever done this, where we have two esteemed members of the MG educational staff getting into a, a, a brawl. No, I'm just kidding. That's not the point of tonight. The point of tonight is to have an open discussion um, about Torah, spirituality, God, light stuff that you want to talk about after a long day at work. What I'm really proud of, and I want to introduce our I don't want to say our panel, but our educators, uh, and many of you know both uh, Rabbi Daniel and Rabbi Pinney. Um, one thing I'm incredibly proud of here at MGE is that we try to present a plethora of views on Judaism and not to present Judaism as a sort of monolithic, take it or leave it um, kind of religion. And we have different educators who come with a very substantive um, Solid Jewish education, both Rabbi Pinney and Rabbi Daniel both studied in various yeshivot over the years. Rabbi Pinney and I have been doing this together for a lot longer, no offense, Rabbi Daniel. 16 years last week. 16 years. Rabbi Pinney's been on the MG staff for 16 years. I think you got a clap for that. Um, it's not going to be held against you. 16 weeks. 16 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, um, so Rabbi Pinney is a... Um, a great Torah scholar, product of uh, a wonderful yeshiva where I also had the honor of studying, uh, called Yeshiva B'nai Torah in Farakway. Uh, his teacher and mentor is an extraordinary rabbinic figure. You should live and be well, Rabbi uh, Chait. Um, and I had the honor of actually meeting Rabbi Pini in um, the yeshiva. And I have a very, I think, a pretty good sense of the kind of Torah and the kind of perspective on Judaism that that yeshiva gives and continues to teach. It's been around for many, many years. 50 years this year. Wow. Right. So it's a very established place, and a lot of the teachers there also, uh, anyone who came on our trip to Israel heard from Rabbi Mann, who was, who was a teacher, was my teacher when I was there many years ago. And Rabbi Daniel has a very different, and I'm going to let each of you tell your own personal stories, but Rabbi Daniel's um, Torah study is from a more mystical, I would say, Chabad studied at Mayanot, which is a wonderful yeshiva, Chabad yeshiva in Israel. One of the reasons actually we brought Rabbi Daniel on staff was to be able to give you guys and to give our audience and give the Jewish people that different kind of perspective that we're going to be able to hear a little yin and yang tonight. Um, I'm sitting here in the middle for two reasons. Number one, this is a much more comfortable chair than the two of you have, I'm just saying. Number two, um, I'm a great admirer of both of these approaches. Uh, I was schooled personally in more of the Rabbi Pinney world. I studied at Yeshiva University, modern orthodoxy, which tends to be more rationalist in its orientation. But I would say in the last 10, 8 to 10 years, I've gravitated a little more towards uh, the world of Chabad, Hasidut, Kabbalah, mysticism. Um, and I think they both bring incredible power um, and wisdom to life um, and to Judaism. And I think both are necessary, which is why we have both uh, teachers on staff. So this is not about who's right. This is not about like, you know, who makes a, you know, a better argument or, you know, um, this is really about learning and deepening our appreciation for Torah through a more rational approach and through a more esoteric or mystical approach. So I'm going to start by asking each of my colleagues and friends to 
tell us briefly about your Jewish backgrounds and what inspired you, Rabbi Pinney, and you, Rabbi Daniel, uh, towards the rationalist and more mystical uh, approaches to Judaism and to life. Rabbi Pinney. Mark, thank you so much. Great to be here and with everybody here. Thank you for coming out. Um, so I grew up in Seattle, Washington. Part of the surface of Seattle. Uh, good coffee. Great weather, you know, not so great weather. And um, my father, my father's a rabbi, and he had the only high school. He was, a, he was the founding dean of uh, the school, the high school, Jewish high school in Seattle, Washington, called at that point Yeshivat Or Hatzafon, now called the Northwest Yeshiva High School. And he hired, when I came to high school, uh, three rabbis. Uh, Rabbi Morton Moskowitz, the Colonel of Rocha, Rabbi Bernie Fox, and Rabbi Saul Zucker, who were all students of Yeshiva Nei Torah in Farakaway, uh, who, after I graduated, were so inspired and so interested in, in, and energized by that approach to Judaism, I went to Farakaway, and I studied for over six years in that Yeshiva, and which is basically, to put a little more of a, just instead of the, the word rational, I'd say the more the, Maimonidean, uh, Maimonides was the great uh, Jewish uh, scholar of the 12th century, um, 1200s, 12th century, where he brought his classic work, the Moran the Guide to the Perplexed, as well as his famous text, the Mishnah Torah, which is studied in every single yeshiva in the world every single day. So that really is sort of the person who exemplifies uh, the, the, the vision of Judaism that I'd like to share with you tonight. Yeah. Beautiful. Daniel. First of all, kudos to Rabbi Mark and MGE. This is not that common in the Jewish world to have some. I, I remember a beautiful video of Rabbi Yosef Beres Soloveitchik going to a Fabrengen of the Rebbe and sitting together. They were, in, they were in college and university together in Berlin, so we see this proceeding tonight. Um, I came to, even though I had a strong Jewish background and, and education, I came to my more religious connection to Judaism, not through, um, I would say, an intellectual inquiry, but through a more spiritual one. When I was 15 or 16, I had my first, during prayer one Friday night, I felt something um, ignite within me. And that spark is what led me to want to learn what is this? What is spirituality? What is Judaism? Let me look at my heritage and see what what this could be from, what, what, what's going on in life. I started to wake up to what, what is life all about. So I think that definitely influenced me from, from a younger age to, and, and the learning of the rational side and learning of why we believe what we believe uh, intellectually helped ground that excitement. But I was always uh, thirsting for something more. And um, for me, Judaism was always a relationship with God. It wasn't something that I just had to do. And um, and, and just to preface this conversation, we think a lot about um, faith and knowledge. And usually you think of faith as like a blind thinking and knowledge is intellectual. But according to the mystical approach, faith is connected to the word uman, emuna. Uman, the Alter Rebbe in chapter 42 of Tanya says that it's the idea of training your mind and eyes, eyes to see the world as a outer manifestation of God's light. It's something that you can work on. And it's also an experience we can get into maybe later. It's not just irrational or blind faith. And knowledge isn't just something in your mind. Knowledge, we see that Adam, it says, knew Eve. Knowledge, das, is connected to an intimate connection to something. And that's really what my path has been um, 
about, which is, you know, you can talk about God, you can talk about visiting Israel, but when you're standing at the Kotel, when you're experiencing something as something far different that you can't just speak about. And I wanted to find ways to reignite and re-experience again and again that union with Hashem. And uh, I guess that's what kind of pushed me along the uh, mystical path. All right, thank you. That's a great way just to hear a little about your personal backgrounds and what, because, you know, so much of the way we practice our Judaism has to do with who we are in terms of our personalities. So let's get into, you know, you mentioned Hashem, God, is at the center of everything. I think for both rational, you know, rational, observant Jews um, and, um, and mystical ones too. Um, so how do we relate to God? Is God out there or is God in here? We've all heard people say, you know, I need to look inside and find that inner voice. And then we've heard other rabbis and teachers say that, um, you know, God is transcendental or he's, um, you know, he's, he's the king of kings. He's, he's like beyond us. And we kept praying again and again. So I'm going to ask, let's start with you, Rabbi Pinney. How do you understand our relationship with Hashem vis-a-vis who we are and the way we are created? Who are we praying to? Who are we talking to? Is, it, is, is there a part of God within us? Is God out there? We're here. How do we bridge that gap? No, like question. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mark. Uh, first of all, I love that story. It's a beautiful, inspiring story, and, I'm, and I think it's, you've received many blessings from Hashem to be here, and I'm glad that we can have this conversation. Because just to share just a point, when we have a conversation or a debate, as it was marketed, the debating that we see in our outside world is not a Jewish concept. Debating in, in America, let's say a presidential debate, is to stick to your talking points and regardless of what the other person says, right or wrong, just to score points. Here we're in a symposium about ideas, and the goal is that for all of us to get a greater, greater insight than we had when we walked in, I'm, I, I, and as well as myself, I'm, I'm here to learn. And I think that should be the attitude of everybody. We're trying to, we're really, as, as, uh, as it says in, in the Tanakh, we should be seekers of God. And that's what we're on tonight. That's the, the journey we're on tonight. So to, to unpack your rather very dense question. So, so let's just start with something which we're more comfortable with. Everybody here is familiar with the most classic sentence in the Torah. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our, the God, Lord is our God. The Lord is one. What does that mean? So Maimonides discusses that. What is God's oneness? And he talks about that in his Mishnah Torah in the first chapter of the foundations of the Torah. And he says, God's oneness is absolutely unique. He's not one like a body. So if we have a person before us, it's one person. But yet scientists tell us that that one person is composed of 37 trillion cells. So he's one, but yet many, composed of parts. So number one, God is a oneness who's not a body, and therefore he has no parts. And two, he's not a oneness like an idea. Let's say that we have an idea called beauty. Well, you're beautiful, and you're beautiful, and everybody here is beautiful. So everybody partakes of the concept, the singular concept of beauty. So that's a plurality. 
So God's oneness applies to only one thing, himself. So therefore, God is, uh, he's absolutely, uh, he's perfect, he's, he's absolutely one, and he can't be part of his created world, because if he did, he would have parts. And that would contradict the most foundational sentence that we say many times every day. Hashem Echad, God is one. He's uniquely one, a oneness that's exclusive to him. And not only that, there's a great, the greatest Kabbalist, Nachmanides, who lived in the generation after Maimonides, who wrote the first Kabbalistic commentary on the Torah. And he said, he took it one step further than the Maimonides. He said, imagining God having parts is a contradiction. And you cannot believe a contradiction. You cannot believe in a square circle. You cannot. So you can say it. You could say that God has parts, or there's a part of God in all of us. But you don't really believe it, because you cannot believe in a contradiction. So both the Kabbalist, the original Kabbalist, one of the most primary, and Maimonides, the great rationalist, are agreed that the oneness of God precludes him being in his created, him and his creation are separate. That's why it's a creation. There was, a, there was in, in, as it were, God existed separate from the, there was no creation. And then, due to his will, emerged from him the created world. Why? We do not know. It's another thing. This is an area where you have to have humility. We also do not know a lot. But there is, we have some foundational principles that is part of our tradition. And just understanding what Moshe said, God is one. He's uniquely one. No parts, no body, and not part of his, and, and, and completely other than his created world. Has no correlation, does not look. But what makes people very confused is the term Selim Elohim, God's image. That is a metaphorical concept. We have a similarity to God, as Rashi, the great medieval commentator, says that God, the image of God means reason and speech. We were given, mankind was given a profound, generous gift, the ability to think, to reason, and to communicate ideas, the greatest gift. In that way, we are similar in a, in a, in a metaphorical way to God, but we're not and we don't look like God, you may, and you may even call it a godliness because it's so unique. But uh, us and God are completely different. And uh, the Raman even goes further. He says, if the entire material world, the universe, would not exist, God would exist in his perfection. And if we don't add anything to him and we don't subtract anything to him, his perfection is eternal. All right, excellent. So maybe we can just pick up on this one point, uh, Daniel, that Brother Penny shared, which is that, and tell me if, you, if I'm saying this right, Penny, that because God's unity is absolute, we can't part, you know, we can't partake of God's existence in any way. God's there and we're here because we are the creation. He is the creator. And by definition, if we would somehow partake of God's existence, that would somehow compromise his oneness or his unity. Right. And that would not be God. So I don't have enough time to go into the entire Hasidic and Kabbalistic answer to that, or uh, different perspective to what Rav, Rav Pini um, said. I think there's a story in the Talmud and one of, one of the ancient writings that says that there was someone who um, 
who asked a similar question. If you see so much, how could you say God is everywhere when we see so much multiplicity and detail? And he pointed to the different windows and the different sun rays, the lights coming through the different windows, and you saw light everywhere. If you look at a lake or a river and you see uh, sun gleaming thousands, millions of dots on the lake, and you say, wow, there's so many different aspects of light. So, no, it's really just one source. It's one sun. If you go through a prism, light goes through a prism and different colors come out. It's all coming from one source. So um, the, the idea of, of God being detached or um, not part of this world or this universe is, I'm sure we'll get more into it as, as the night goes on. Um, the mystical approach is, is quite the opposite, that yes, it is not at all an uh, uh, infringement on God's essence and infinity, but to limit God to infinity, so to speak, to limit God to not being able to manifest his light in a limited form or in details is also a limitation on God, is a detraction from God. Um, just briefly on what you said at the beginning about is God found within or without, I think about Avram Avinu and the patriarchs and the prophets. Avram was known to investigate the world and see God in it, logically, but he was also considered one of the greatest mystics, like Sefer Tzira is attributed to the first book of Kabbalah is attributed to him, and I think they go hand in hand in that the Jewish people at, at Mount Sinai experienced a revelation from God, a, a mystical experience. So our entire religion, our entire belief system is not just a uh, intellectual investigation, but is also something um, mystical that's that's experienced. And we could go a lot into, Rapini brought up a lot of interesting points and definitely definitely truth in the Rambam's approach, but there's, there's uh, definitely some differences I'm sure we'll get into. So, so just to clarify, because we want everyone to actually follow this whole thing. So in response to Rabbi Pinney's assertion that, that God cannot be within us because it would compromise his oneness, his unity, your response is that just like, let's say, the rays of the sun are hitting an ocean or a lake, and it seems like different, but it's all coming, it's like sort of a prism coming from one place, it would be a limitation, in a sense, of God to say that he couldn't make himself, um, he couldn't make himself, um, he couldn't express himself in the physical world through us or anything in the physical world. And, and anyone who, who's learned the mystical writings in depth will, can trace, so to speak, the, the philosoph philosophical underpinnings of every step of that progression from an infinite being and how you could still have a cup on the table and say that this is all part of the infinite unity. It's not a simple saying. It's and where, I don't know if you're thinking this, but do you no, have something? I, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, uh, so first of all, let's just a couple of terms that when people speak about God, they use you know metaphorical terms and they're not very precise. So I'll ask you a very simple question: Is God everywhere? No. He can't be. He's outside time and space. He's not everywhere. You, we say every day on Shabbat, we say the holy, we say the most, we have the Kedusha. Holy, 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 Kadosh, Kadosh, Hashem, Melokol, Ars, Kivodo, the glory of God is everywhere, which means the impact, his power is everywhere. He's not here. He can't be here. If he's in space and time, he's physical. You just destroyed God. And the second thing, which the Rambam in the Mordavuchim talks extensively, is another, another principle is God cannot do the impossible. For example, the classic question, can God create a, lift a rock, that he, you know, create a little rock that he can't lift? No. Can he make himself not exist? Can he make himself into a man? No. He 
You cannot do, because doing that which is not a perfection is not a lack in him. That's true. So he, so therefore, the fact that he can't do that which is impossible, but it's not, but to do that which is impossible would be a, a degradation of his being is, uh, is not a lack. So, and the third point, just about the light metaphor. So Isaiah says that in, descri- in describing God, he says, what can I be compared to? God, since he's absolutely other than us, you can't compare. So you're going to make an analogy like light, but light is a physical thing, either a ray, either it's a, a wave or a particle. We don't have to answer that problem on that. We've got enough problems to answer. Okay, But the bottom line is, it's a physical phenomena which has physical properties. God's not physical. He doesn't have physical properties. And therefore, it's a nice analogy. Now, I want to say another point, which I think is very critical. We got to this particular point, is Nachmanides wrote the first Kabbalistic commentary on the Chumash. And in his introduction, he says the most strangest thing, which I'm going to tell you right now. He tells you, don't read, don't read it, unless you've had a tradition, ish ish, person to person, about the, the, uh, these Kabbalistic ideas. Do not read that. Why? It will hurt you. Why will it hurt you? Because it's not something you can figure out logically. It's a certain, there are certain principles of this Kabbalistic metaphysical system that if you do not have those concepts, what's going to happen is you're going to project, you're going to create God in your own image. You're going to create, and therefore, because, and, and all the Kabbalistic writings are always used in metaphysical, are using metaphorical, um, metaphorical terms. So unless you, ha- are, you truly are trained, you can, you're, you're getting into the danger zone. So I just had a great conversation recently, last couple of years, I had a conversation with Rabbi Herschel Schechter, the Rosh of YU, about the Tanya. The Tanya has a dramatic statement in the second chapter. So for those of you unfamiliar, Tanya is uh, the writings of the first founding Lubavitch rabbi. It's a classic work on Kabbalah. Right, so he says a dramatic statement. That he takes a verse of, from Job. Chelek elokai mal. Chelek means a, por- a portion of, from God, um, you know, from above. It says mamish, which means on the, uh, you would read on the surface is that there is a, a part of God amongst all of us. And he says mamish. In actuality, so I, so so he, as a disciple of Rabbi Soloveitchik, he says you have to understand it's a mashal. This is Rav Shechter. and I'm going to translate the Hebrew. But I want you to hear the Hebrew. There's a mashal of a mashal of a mashal. It is a metaphor of a metaphor of a metaphor. Shlomo Melech had three thousand of them. Right. So the point being is that we're. In these Kabbalistic writings, the reason why I'm saying I'm not here to, I cannot say to the Nachmanides, the great Torah scholar of the medieval period who authored a Kabbalistic commentary on the Chumash, that there is nothing to Kabbalah. I'm just listening to him. He says, don't go here unless you are part of the, receive the such a Masora, such a tradition. Because if you don't, the, the, the damage you can do to yourself is, to use the Kabbalistic phrase, infinite. So you want to be careful here. And to go to the classic Gaonic, Rishonic approach is clear and avoiding problems. And, and to go into the Tanya is, is to go into areas which is 
subject to, if you don't know what's really going on there, you're going to be lost in the mushal, and you don't know if did you get the metaphor, or did you get the metaphor of the metaphor, or did you get the metaphor of the metaphor of the metaphor. So you could end up a little lost. I don't want to rebut a rebuttal because we can move on, but 100% uh, agree about the analogy. The number one rule of studying Kabbalah it says, Mafshit min hagashmius. You must remove the, the physicality of the idea. When you hear a lot of Kabbalah's analogies, it's pointing you in the direction of an ethereal idea. So you never want to get stuck in that. And I just will add that all before Maimonides and before Nachmanides, in the Talmud and in the Mishnah and all the sages that our entire Judaism is based on, from the minute halacha we do, were master mystics. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Akiva, who ascended to the Pardis. So this is not only something that is a cute aspect of Judaism, but it is, I would argue, essential. And we will, I'm sure, explore that as we go on. Okay, so we're going to, I was going to ask Daniel for you to respond to what Penny mentioned just about the, the multiplicity. We can go on forever, but you mentioned to me, you mentioned that the next question will hopefully give you an opportunity to continue to discuss this issue, which is how do you... I'm here all night. <laughs> all night. Um, how do you both read the opening verse of the Bible, of the Torah, which we read last, just two days ago on Shabbat? Uh, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. That phrase... How do you understand that from your perspective, from your perspective? And B, we say a certain prayer every morning. We say, Elokai Nishama, Elokai, excuse me, comma, God, Nishama Shinasata B, the soul that you gave within me to Horahi, it is pure. What does that phrase mean? What is it referring to? And this will, I think, help, I think, um, flesh out the two different perspectives here that we're hearing from. Daniel, you, you want to continue? Sure. Um, anybody know how God created reality based on the Torah, based on Genesis? What does it say? How did, how did he go about it? I'm using he, even though God is not a he. How did he go about it? Speech. speech. It says, God said, let there be light. God said, let there be water, vegetation. What is speech at its core? I'm making you think a little bit tonight. Speech, you hear me talking, but what is the function of speech? What does speech do? Beautiful. You have something hidden in your mind, and speech is that vehicle of a, of a, a gift that allows us to then express it outwards. A difficult gift because it will never touch what you actually, the depths of what you have in here, but at least it gets some of it out to the other. Another aspect of speech is communication. I mean, yeah. uh, in most societies, people who talk to themselves are considered strange mm. or mentally ill. The whole point of, of communicating is to share with everyone. You're thinking something, physically you're saying something, but the idea is that there's someone on the other side to hear what it is you're saying, because otherwise you're just talking to yourself, literally. We won't go on a tangent, but I would argue just the vehicle of speech, according to the mystical writings, triggers the depths of your thinking, because I'll, I would go up to rabbis when I had a Talmudic question. I would verbalize the entire question out, and I wouldn't wait for the answer. I'd go and sit back down. Because by getting it out, the power of speech, it'll, it can trigger, your, it helps you form what's in your mind and, and understand as well. So speech is powerful, whether to another or even just writing on a journal or voicing it. The mystics go very deep into this idea. It's in Shari Yitzhah Ben-Muna and Tanya. It's, it's everywhere. Speech 
is an expression from inner to outer. All it means, it doesn't mean, again, remember we just said, you have to mafshit minagashas, you have to remove the physicality of it. We say God spoke. God doesn't have a mouth like we have a mouth. Speech is, was God manifested outwardly from inner potential, a reality that feels separate from God, but in truth is not. So, so one aspect of saying that God spoke reality into being is this idea of us feeling separate and being a new manifestation of God's light. Hasidus takes it further and says that God um, wasn't, didn't say it once. God is continually speaking it. And we, we don't have enough time, but the idea is everything we know of that's created came from something else. You make a table, you make a glass, you make something. There was some, func- some form and you made it into another form. When do we ever see an example of something coming from nothing? Never. This universe is only an example of something that comes from nothing into something, and that needs perpetual infusion of energy. When we see when God splits the sea, which we can get into if that actually happened or what your view on miracles, but when God splits the sea, what does it say? Did he just split it once? No. There was a wind that pushed the water apart the entire night. Why? Because the nature of water is to descend. To make it separate, to make something from nothing, it has to be continual. You throw a rock in the air, the moment your energy's out of it, it'll fall back to the ground. This universe perpetually being formed into creation by God's speech. God is speaking, I would say singing, this reality into this, this world, the universe into reality at every moment. There's, a, there's an argument between a misnagid and a chassid. Misnagid was a term used by those who opposed the new Hasidic movement in the 1700s. And they did not have nice debates like this. It was, it was very brutal until not that long ago, actually. And um, they, they, someone said, well, how would God destroy the world if he wanted to? So the misnagid said, well, you know, God could light it on fire and, and then he could take the ash and throw the ash into the water and the water would slowly, uh, you know, melt into little and then it would disintegrate into the earth. And he gave a whole thing. So they asked the chassid, how would God destroy the world if he wanted to? He said, God would stop speaking. Would stop forming this reality into what it is. Now, what's a, de- what's a detraction from speech? The, the mystics say that the universe being created by God was milin de hediota, like foolish talk. Like if I saw you guys tonight, you walked in and I said, hey, what's up? Absentmindedly. That's what this universe is. The grandeur of all the galaxies in the universe we live in that we're so amazed by, that is God's like, hey, what's up? Meaning a vo- just a word from you, how much is that to your essence of who you are? Very little. Hashem, God, although this is all an aspect of God's reality and God's being, is nothing, as if a speck of dust in the infinity that is God. When you ask the second part of the question, the, the soul you have placed in me is pure, the beauty of that idea is what was the last thing that God forms? He speaks, he speaks, he speaks, and then it says, God God blew a soul into the nostrils of man. What's the difference between me talking and me breathing? I can filibuster for 16 hours. We rabbis love to talk. But if I took a deep breath in and blew out, I'd have to, I need like a second to recover because that's coming from like the depths of my being. It's a deeper part of my breath. So again, we're not speaking physically whatsoever, God forbid. But when it says God spoke and then he blew, it means that the soul of you, your soul, the, the soul comes from a place deeper than any aspect of the universe, including angels, including the higher worlds, including the vastness of the universe that we seek. Your soul comes from a deeper aspect of godliness. And... Tapping into that allows you to go beyond anything that your eyes can see. Um, more to say, but I'll stop so, on that. So the breathing you're saying, that is that where the Kabbalistic idea that 
there is a part of God within us because, you know, when the person breathes, like I, I saw once I was in Italy and I saw a glass blower it was in Venice and there's a part of the blower, there's a part of the creator, we said this Friday night actually, uh, there's a part of the creator within the creation. Is that where this Kabbalistic idea that there's a part of God within us come from? Because neshama, neshima, and all that. Absolutely. Neshama, the word for soul and breath is the same. But but just regarding the glassblower analogy, Rabbi Arya Kaplan in, in the book Jewish Meditation, he uses the glassblower analogy to refer to the five levels of the soul. And he says that the, the, the breath of the glassblower that enters the bottom of the vessel to start to form it, that's your nefesh, your lowest part of your soul. The wind, so to speak, of the, of the breath that comes down is your ruach. The, as it's leaving the throat is like neshama. Chaya, the, the, high, the fourth highest level, is, is the breath before it's left the throat of the glassblower. And yechida, the essence of your soul, is the will of the glassblower to even want to blow out. Again, these are all analogies upon analogies upon analogies. But the essence of your soul is one with God like a desire. Like if you walk into your kitchen after work and you smell a delicious dish, your desire for that dish before words come about, before you even move towards it, just an inner desire, how one that is with you, that's the depths of your soul as it is one with God at all times. I'm speaking too much, I'll pass it over. And, uh, Robert Penny, how would you, how do the classic, I guess, medieval rationalists then understand speech versus breath then? So, so, so that's yeah. excellent question. So the first principle to decode this entire Genesis story is Dibra, Tara, Klishon, B'nai Adam. Five words. The Torah speaks in the language of man, which depicts man, God metaphorically as a man. In the chapter one of Genesis, what is God analogous to? He's a contractor. How long is his job? It's six days. Okay, how's it going? First day's good. Second day's good. Third day, not enough. It's just still incomplete. Uh, third, you know, then we have we have each day, and then till the sixth day, until the entire universe, or the uh, at least uh, the the human the, the solar system or the Earth is is tov ma'od, very good. So the language of of God speaking these are these are uh, these are metaphors. God does not does not have them as mentioned since he's not physical, has no mouth. So his communication, his wisdom animates, which the wisdom that uh, flows from him animates the entire universe. And with, by analogy, as far as, as God speaking the universe in, but his, he, it needs, the universe needs to be continuously willed. Imagine you're in a pool and somebody throws you a volleyball and they ask you to submerge the ball. The ball is submerged down. Now, if you let go of that ball, the ball will shoot up. That really re re reflects the relationship between the universe and God. The universe is, and this is from, is a contingent, is an unnecessary existence. It does not have to be. This is a major dividing point between our competent. The universe doesn't have to be. What has to be is God. God is the necessary existence, the universe, and by extension us. We don't have to be. It requires God's will. And a product of his will is the, is, is the universe itself. Can we know why he did it? No, because he does. if you do, then you're going to put God into causality. Like he has a need. God is not physical. He has no needs. No difference here. In no, there's a tremendous difference because he is a huge difference. 
what I'm depicting is what they call just a, you know, I'm going to put you into a graduate school course of philosophy for 60 seconds. Here we go. This is the difference between theism and panentheism. Panentheism. P-A-N-E-N, not pantheism. Right, right. not pantheism. Pan, pan means all, N means in. Right. So, theism, God. So, all is within God. The, so, uh, theism is God is uh, is a is the absolute all perfect uh, being, perfect no parts, and uh, as extraneous to Him is the universe. Pantheism is God and the universe are one. God is sort of like the is like the um, the best way to describe it is He is essentially the mind of the universe. He is the, He is the hard drive. He's the He's running the software. This is actually the God that. Uh, Einstein believed in Spinoza. Okay, that the wisdom of God it runs the universe, the laws of nature. That is it. Panentheism is that everything is in within God, the universe, and He is beyond that. He's within, beyond that. Now, both. Yes. Yeah. That, that's another. Uh, panentheism is trying to get the best of both worlds. You want to be a little theistic, and you want to have the benefit of pantheism. Now, again, that position is which is not part of the uh, uh, classic Jewish, until the modern Kabbalists, I don't mean the prior Kabbalists, I'm talking about the Arizal on, which is 1600s, seems to be, again, what I, I go back to my first point. I don't know how you can say that and maintain God's oneness, because basically you're saying, then we're all God. So why do I have to dive into God? I'm just diving into myself, because I'm God. Because then you'd be limiting it to one thing. So panentheism is... So, but I, but if, if everything is God, then, every, then I, can, well, I can pray to him. He and I both no, because, are all parts of God. Because then you're limiting God to him. Meaning, the, once you segregate, once you delineate one thing, like praying to one thing, to a tree, to a table, to a person, you're now limiting God. To, at that moment, you're limiting God in one thing. Panentheism, which I do uh, gravitate more towards, uh, pan, all, n is within God. Meaning God is not limited to, and it's, it's the difference also, you know, uh, between the Eastern religions and 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 uh, Judaism, is that is that there's a monism. There is a being that is behind all this. It's not just all oneness, and there's no being. There is a being behind all this. So on one hand, you have the best of both worlds, as you said, that everything is. Well, that's the attempt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, everything is is is. There's nothing outside of God, but God is not limited to one thing. It is all just. Just, just aspects of God's expression. Right. Just expression, by the way. Again, speech. Speech is a great thing to think about. So let me let me, let me come back to something Penny was asking before, mentioned before. How do you feel about what Penny said about um, this not being studied um, by the masses? Um, there is this famous edict um, that you know you shouldn't learn Kabbalah until you're 40. And by the way, there's uh, Rabbi Moshe Weinberger was a big rabbi. In the five towns, probably much more in the Kabbalistic camp, said there's also, that says 18, which is just as credible, he said, um, you know, that. But what's your feeling? Um, should it be limited to, you know, any age? Or, you know, you're now on the MG staff. How would you feel like if somebody walked in here Wednesday night, one-on-one learning? By the way, 7 to 8 o'clock, Wednesday night, one-on-one learning. Always plugging. Um, somebody wants to come in, and they come in, and they say, I want to learn Kabbalah. And you see, they don't really know their Allah from the bet. I would be in favor with a great teacher. I think that we live in a time that is desperate. There's a, in, this, in, the, in the Alter Rebbe's time, which was far less of a, uh, you know, as I had a rabbi who said, back in the day, if, if you wanted to do a sin, you had to prepare for a month. You had to save up money, 
you had to buy a ticket to the to the big town. You had to go to the big town and go to some risque show. It was a whole to do. Today, you just turn on your phone. So, um, an, in, in the Alter Rebbe's time, in the little shtetls in Europe, one time uh, Rabbi Pinchas of Koritz, who was a student of the of the Baal Shem Tov and the Magad of Mezrich, you would think a Hasidic master would be very pro. He was against sharing it to the masses. He felt it was for a select few. And one of the papers of the Magad's deep, deep, beautiful teachings was in a gutter. I guess it had flown through the window, and and he was enraged. Like, look at the way this is being treated, this this essay. So the Alter Rebbe wanted to placate him. And he said, there was once a king who had a son, the prince, who got ill, was sick. And he was on his deathbed. He was, he was dying. And, and the doctors tried everything. One of the doctors said, my king, I have a small opportunity to maybe heal your son, the prince. It's a long shot. He's like, anything, anything for my son. What is it? He says, it's going to involve your crown. He's like, that's okay. What is it going to take? So it's going to take the crown jewel in the front of your crown. We have to take it, grind it up. Take the powder, put it in a drink, and this special gem might, might, a drop of it might enter his mouth and might heal him. And the king said, for my son, my son's life, for sure. And says, Rapinchus Koritz heard this analogy, and he was placated and calmed down. And the idea is the crown jewel of Torah of God is the mystical teachings of Judaism, is Hasidus and Kabbalah. And even though it's a risk to share it to the masses everywhere as if it's some kind of, oh, look at this cute analogy, when really the depths of it are, as you say, wait till you're 40, wait till you're older. Our generation is so sick spiritually, we're so numb to spiritual reality that I believe our bigger danger is to be numb to Judaism than it is that we might learn something that might be too esoteric. And I think it, it helps us wake up from slumber. And that's when the Baal Shem Tov came around, was after the Kimmelnitsky massacres of hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed in Europe. And Judaism was, was dark and not, Jews felt like so out of it. And he, he came to try to, to, try to uh, inspire that. And um, uh, the, the final, final uh, uh, point to it is um, the... Also, regarding 40, I would say in all honesty and in fairness to, the, to that perspective, I have noticed, and I've been learning for 20 years, I have noticed myself learning the same ideas that I did over the last 20 years in a completely new light as I've grown. Your mind matures. You're like, oh, how could I have thought of it that way? So no question that the older you get, the more you learn. And if you just study, some people just love studying Kabbalah and nothing else. That's like taking flowers from the ground, plucking the flowers from the ground, and enjoying the flowers. It's good, but it'll die out. It has to be in the earth. It has to be within the fundamentals of Torah observance, of, of, of halacha, of, of Judaism as a whole. Then Kabbalah can infuse that with more inspiration. But just on its own and, and in an in a, in a, in a adventurous, lazy way without the proper guidance, I think, would be, would be missing the mark. Wow. Okay, thank you both. So I want to respond yeah, to that a little bit. Yeah. So first of all, that um, the, the opposition of Kabbalah for all people started with the Ramban, Nachmanides, and when the Arizal shared his teaching, his special illumination of what we call modern Kabbalah with his disciples, not written down, and he, he made them swear on pain of death not to write this down, not to disseminate. But of course, what happened? It was written down and it was published. The Arizal was a totally against that. What do you think of what Daniel's response though? What, so not, not every illness do you give every kind of medicine. I agree with the illness part. In other words, like, for example, I am very, the fact that we're having this conversation is because 
thanks to the, the Kabbalists, the conversation of God is now, we're talking about it. In the non-Orthodox world, which we both are part of, has an illness, which is about Judaism has been re reduced down to, um, you know, in a, in a very hyper-focused way of doing the ritual activity in the most perfect way. Both the Kabbalists and the rationally saying, you have missed the boat. Isaiah says the Jewish people are doing your Judaism in a rote, mechanical way. This is an eternal problem. Do you think, Penny, and this is something I think about a lot, do you think that our backgrounds, yeah. which is different than Daniel's background, yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you think that, unfortunately, it, because, because we're, we're not really talking about God, and we're not talking about, about God in this kind of way. We talk about God in a much more detached, academic way. Yep. That that has led to a certain numbness and that's led to a certain lack of passion and excitement, which, which you know, unfortunately, and, and that's why someone like me, who's a product of this community, is, is veering towards that. And, and my son, right. and, and, and there's a Chabad house at Yeshiva University now, which is like the bastion of modern orthodoxy, and there's like a Chabad house there. It's like, I don't even know what the analogy to that would be. But it's it's happening because, in my opinion, and I'm just curious. If so so I, I, I want to agree with the spiritual numbness diagnosis. Um, most observant Jews are dialing it in. In other words, they're just, this is, in other words, it's basically reduced... If you're living a, Jew, a Jewish life as social orthodoxy, which is that there's a community and there's a ticket, you want to be in the you want to be in the club, you got to do the certain behaviors, behaviors, and then the focus becomes focused on all the precise way. Now I have a halacha chat, so I'm you know I'm not a stranger to halacha minutia here. Having said that, the Kabbalists that there has to be a kavana. That's the big word in Kabbalah. In 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 in, in, in focus. Uh, focus, intention, devotion, whatever you want to call that, and 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 ra and the and the great uh, great uh, you know medieval scholars, Maimonides, Nachmanides, also made it. You have to you have to do mindful Judaism to be an activity of mindful activity. Mindful activity is a key phrase. So if you're just doing ritualistic behaviors in a, in in a, in a in a thoughtless manner. It of course is going to feel dead, and then you feel like I, 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 my, I just, I'm, I'm a walking dry stick. So you need some, you need something. So Hasidic is, you know, the Hasidic approach has an immediate uh, appeal. I mean, I think the, I think the uh, Baal Shem Tov approved that quite succinctly. And in fact, the, the, the challenge, many, you know, historians say during the time of the, the, in other words, there was the, the elite scholars who were having a, a robust life. By the way. The misnagdim, the the posers, thing, also agreed with Arizal. They were also they were also they were not rationalists in the classic sense. They were disciples of the Arizal. The Vilna Gaon wrote a commentary on the right. on the Zohar. Having said that, they shared, but the the the, the Gaon of Vilna put the Baal Shem Tov and the Baal in in Cherem in excommunication because among things, a he felt that they got the core concepts distortedly wrong, which is a you know very destructive, and b this is not to be shared with people, no matter what. If there are problems, this is a, just because you have a solution does not mean that is a the right solution. Now, I agree with the, the diagnosis. Doesn't mean that we have to give them, in my view, 
uh, a, a, a Judaism, which is a, which is a new a new a new perspective, which ha I, as I think I've already articulated, has systemic challenges. Just a very short story based on what you guys what both were saying about about modern orthodoxy. It's like, I, I've this is actually new for me. In, it, I guess my family, I would say, is more Orthodox, and I've, I've, uh, you know, I, I've been around. But in San Diego, California, where I grew up, there wasn't many. You're not either you're few religious people, or you're not religious. I've always taught, and my friends and everyone worked with are not religious whatsoever. Um, and I, that's what I mean when I say spiritual numbness. And I imagine it applies across the board to all of us in different gradations. Um, Rabbi Akiva Ager was one of the great. Uh, Gonin and Rabbi Geniuses in, in Europe. Uh, his grandson, I believe, is Rabbi Label Eger, who became a chassid, became a, a mystic. And it was not, they were not too happy with that. So the story goes that he went to he went to the court, I believe, of the Kutzker Rebbe, and he went to visit to see what's this Hasidic mystical movement all about. So he shows up, and it's heir of Yom Kippur, just before Yom Kippur is coming in, holiest day of the year. He comes early, he starts praying, think, reflecting on his deeds. It's about an hour to go before Yom Kippur starts. He's in shul early, and about half an hour before Yom Kippur starts, the Hasidim there take out, they lay a table out, and they put a ton of food and drink on it. It's like, that's strange. I mean, I get the meal before Yom Kippur, but like right before in the shul, all right, fine. And he sees them eating and talking, and they're talking about life, and they're talking about ideas. Looks at his watch, it's 15, 15 minutes to go. And he's like, this is uh, getting a little tight, guys. Goes down to 10 minutes. At this point, he can't contain himself anymore. He's like, I know these guys have different practices than me, but this is about as, in, you know, as real as it gets. He walks up to them. He says, my friends, um, you know, it's Yom Kippur starting. They kind of ignore him. It's about seven minutes to go. He says, my friends, the Torah, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Torah says that you have to afflict yourselves, which we know means that you have to fast on Yom Kippur. And they look at him, like, kind of pay attention. They move up, keep going. They're eating and drinking, talking. Five minutes left. He says, uh, my friends, uh, you know, it says throughout Tanakh and, and, and further in the, in the, in the Mishnah and in the Gemara that you have to fast in Yom Kippur. Three minutes left. He says, in Shulchan Aruch and in the Tor and in the Acharon, the Rishonim and in the Acharonim. And, in, 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 and he starts listing all the sources where you're not allowed to eat on Yom Kippur. They still don't pay any attention. One minute left. He says, he's about to lose it. He's like, he says, God said that you can't eat or drink on Yom Kippur. So they turned in and quietly they said, oh, God said? And they put everything away and got ready for Yom Kippur. And, and the lesson they were telling him is, is don't get lost. In, of course, of course, we keep everything in Allah because we know that it's rooted in the Torah, which is rooted in God's will. Um, but we can't forget the, the source of what we're doing when we're learning and observing the aspects and the minutia of Judaism. It's all God's diary. It's all God's will for us to connect to him through. And that was the message that they had for him. I want to ask you guys one last question. Um, and then, by the way, we're going to open it up to our audience. Any questions, comments? Um, very practical. What is the point of a mitzvah? <laughs> what is the reason God gave us these 613 commandments? And if you can give us an example, each of you, of a mitzvah and what it does to connect you to God. How does mitzvah, whatever mitzvah you want to choose, tell us how, in your mind, from your perspective, Rabbi Pinney, more of a rationalist perspective, Daniel, more of a mystical perspective, why did God give me this mitzvah? Or maybe we don't really know the answer to that. But how is this mitzvah somehow intended to connect me to my creator? Yeah, Rabbi 
Great question. That's literally a class, but we'll try to do this in, uh, in a couple of moments. Um, so first thing is that, let me just say what a mitzvah is not. It's not for God. The Torah says in Devarim, Latov Lach, it's for, it's for your good. We say at the end of uh, Yom Kippur, Mayiten Lach, what can we give God? Obviously, we can't give the perfect being anything. So he gave us the Torah as a gift for us. Why? Human happiness, perfection, development, to, and simply put, to have the, be the best versions of ourselves. Let me share specifically. You can look at the mitzvah, as every mitzvah in a certain sense is a therapy. We have all kinds of ethical, emotional challenges, baggages, and a mitzvah there is coming to confront us. If we can't do a mitzvah, it's a message that there's something not well with me. If I can't give the charity, if I see the poor and I am indifferent to them, that means my soul lacks the quality of being generous. And if I can't do that mitzvah, that means I have to look within myself to, to recognize that. So every mitzvah is teaching us a lesson of ethics and philosophy, both on the individual level and on the uh, national level, and, and to avoid certain things. In other words, uh, not to steal, not to murder, not to, uh, to ignore the plight of the poor and the, and the, and the orphan and the widow. It's to, it's, it's to create the, the uh, development. So, and the mitzvah that really is, we say, Talmud Torah Kulam, the mitzvah, which is the greatest of all, is the study of Torah. Because understanding what you're doing, to the extent that you can, will then energize, not just simply that you know how to do the mitzvah, but you'll be a different mitzvah. So you can, on, on Sukkot, step into a sukkah booth, and you can lift up a lulav. But if you don't know what you're really doing, it has limited impact. You should still do it because part of your training. But imagine you understand the idea of Sukkot, and then you live in that sukkah. Imagine you understand why you're taking the lulav and esrog, and why you're keeping Shabbat, and why you're keeping kosher. It's a different experience. And that personally, what energized me as a, uh, as a, a Maimonidean Jew, if you want to call it, is that every day I learn Torah and I have the experience of discovery and the great wisdom of Hashem that he's granted us and is allow- and allowing me to live a completely different life where I can live a balanced, intelligent, thoughtful, minded life. And that is a great gift. And that's the mitzvahs. One of the... The, the earliest Kabbalah, Kabbalistic work, Sefer Yitzira, one of the core teachings, says, Mutes tchilasan v'sofan, v'sofan tchilasan, that the beginning is wedged in the end, and the end is wedged in the beginning, that the highest is found in the lowest, the beginning is found in the end. Rav Pini, at the beginning of this conversation, said, we're not coming to uh, debate or argue, we're coming to like build upon each other. So I want to say from the beginning to the end of this conversation here that what you just said now, I completely agree with, and I'm simply, hopefully, going to just add to uh, that idea that that prayer and that mitzvot are for yourself to grow 100%. But I would say it's also uh, something that binds us and connects us to God. If you look at the word mitzvah, 
the sages say it's connected to the word safsa. If you want to understand in Hebrew, Hebrew is an essential language. So when you can see the word, you can understand the essence of what that thing is. Mitzvah, tzafsa, v'chibur means to connect yourself. Tefillah, prayer. Maybe we'll, I'll use tefillah as my mitzvah because the, you know, the Gemara says, uh, the Torah says you should serve God. Ezu avodah shebalev, zu tefillah, that what does it mean to serve God? It's the Torah, it's to pray. Tefillah comes from tofel, which means to bind yourself. So mitzvot, tefillah, are ways that God has shown us that we can bind our souls and connect ourselves to God. When you, the reason why Chabad, let's say, is really into putting on tefillin with somebody, and, and many in the Jewish world will say, but that person is not religious. They're not going to take on an observant life. Why are you doing like one mitzvah here, one mitzvah there? And Because based on mystical teachings, at that very moment, that person is completely unified and one with Orient Sof, with the infinity of God. And that's just a real, a realness of that moment that can't be taken away. Even if, can I pass yeah. up? Even if the person doesn't understand the nature of the, the leather straps that have been wrapped around his arm, and even if he has a tattoo of Jesus down his arm or whatever yeah. it is. The tattoos, the piercings, the whole thing. Um, in your mind, in the mystic's mind, that Jew is still being connected with God in a profound way. Now we can get into the idea of Makif and Panemius, that if he was able in an internal way to understand what he's doing, everything about Panemius was talking about, 100% we work for that to be true. That makes it real and one with you and not just an ex a encompassing kind of like when people have trippy experiences where it's real for the moment maybe but they don't bring it down into their life that moment might not affect them as they go on their day and that's a sad thing but that moment was real that metaphysically something yes, was happening between 100%. that person's soul and god and physically there's an idea that when you do a mitzvah it changes it's it has it, it, the gemara says that um it call we call it uh, whenever you if you meet a chabani goes on film and someone for the very first time they call it karkafta because in Aramaic, karkafta means a skull. Uh, uh, according to Judaism, a body that is never put on tefillin and then puts it on once is a changed body. It's not the same human. Do you agree? No. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to, yeah. Um, By the way, can I just say, for years I was so skeptical when I would see the Chabad guys. On I'm, I'm supportive of the Chabad putting on tefillin. Of course. I mean, in other words, I, I'm, I'm pro-tefillin, by the way, guys. I'm pro-tefillin. But I'm saying that that is could lead to something probably. But no, 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 no. Right there, he, he is doing he's doing a mitzvah. Of course, he doesn't understand a thing he's doing right now. Yes, that's part that's part of his journey. So you're okay with that? <laughs> I, I, no, I'm, I'm saying that. Uh, I'm saying what's happening on the spiritual level? Because the difference no, 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 is so, that, so I'm just saying, so on the spiritual level beyond beyond the person. With the person, with the person. What's happening to that person's soul and God? Is anything going on there? He has no idea. I'm going to make it just very theoretical so it's clear. He has absolutely no idea why this bearded person has wrapped leather around his arm. I saw a tweet where this woman wrote, some um, Amish guy asked me to shake a big asparagus and a lemon. <laughs> on Sukkot, you know? So, no, because I, I struggle. I'm asking you, Penny. I consider you one of my colleagues and teachers. And I, I struggle with this because they obviously believe these guys are standing all day doing this. Yes. They obviously believe there's some spiritual impact. And not simply because it could lead to... I mean, mitzvah versus mitzvah and all that. But that's not so, 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 first of all, the, 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 the person... If he is, if he's in fact Jewish, you know, you know, assuming that's got, you know, that's a separate thing. All right. Assuming the, 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 the man there is Jewish, he puts on tefillin, he has fulfilled, fulfilled 
He, he fulfilled the mitzvah of tefillin, which is as as a yes. He doesn't, he doesn't believe. In yes, God. this is part of God's kindness. Part of God's kindness is He does not require you to be a philosopher or a Talmud chacham to participate in His Torah. He put the bar all the way down, and the phrase in the Talmud is mitzvos enan srichot kavana. This does not require intent. Just like you're putting on the mitzvah, he, he did the mitzvah. It's a level. I would assume he has to know he's doing a mitzvah. Yeah, well, they, the, the Chabad—they're pretty clear. They're telling him. They're—they're they're right. telling him. They're that—that they—they—they—they tell him they're putting on the mitzvah tefillin, and they'll give him a shma card. I mean, they do a great job. Let's let's uh, let's give it for Chabad. I mean, look, they're let's out give there. It up. Let's give it up, people. Let's give it up. Let's give it up. So the bottom line is that uh, right. So uh, Chabad.org forward slash donate. Anyway, so uh, so the bottom line is that. Uh, that uh, yes, that there, he's doing a mitzvah on the basic level, and that and 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 that's and and what let's well, let's ask a more well, what is the purpose of tefillin? Let's talk about that. What is what does uh, the the, the Rishonim well, talk about that? This is super. super. He's not going to know that. No. You know, he's not going to know By that. By the way, if you want to make a real little chiluk, there, Rabbi Eliyahu Lopian described the mitzvah of tefillin as like you know you make a phone, you put seven numbers to make a phone call. So it's like a way that you can, so to speak, like connect to God, or like you're doing something that then triggers, whereas the Hasidic approach, the mystical approach, is you are now enveloped in godliness. It's an actual godly act itself. It's not leading to something or triggering something. It's many layers to a mitzvah. But, um. So the, the, the idea is that, as a, as a ver- what, let's ask, what does the Torah say Philan is? It talks about rem- reminding us about the Exodus. It, in other words, the tefillin is a sent tefillin and mezuzah. These are mitzvos. It is part of our fashion, part of our decor of our home, to remind us of the reality of Hashem. You know, because it's very easy to forget about God. That's why this is this this gathering tonight is so special. We're having a conversation on a Monday night, on a wet, dreary Manhattan night, and we have a room full of people who really want to uh, to take their concept of God. And deepen it, and that is, and that really is what Tfilin and Mezuzah are trying to do. Every moment, it's there to, to remind you. The the Rambam brings down the verse that these are the, they're the angels that surround you, which means that they because they remind you about the real the core principles of Judaism. So, a person, there are many Jews that were awakened initially because they had that Tfilin experience. But I don't want to right. But even if they weren't awakened, it was. Was it the, was it the, was it the was best? Per, was it the their all star best uh, performance of Mitzvah Fillin? No. no gesture from the point of view of the. No, no, it was not. No, it was not meaningless. Because uh, from the you, you interview the guy five minutes later, I, and and the guy says like ah that was just weird. Right? I just want to say this is something I don't want to go too deep as an outreach professional, but I, I whatever you want to call it, but I struggle with both both sides because. So, I don't, the, the average approach of I want, if there's 100 people in the room, I would love two or three to become like, you know, Torah observant and connected. But and if others are not interested, then I wish them the best. Whereas I'll say a Chabad approach might be, even if no one ever becomes religious, if I can help somebody have one true connection through a mitzvah, that's, that's good. I have an issue on that side sometimes because in that world, it's sometimes content with somebody who will come to your shul for 20 years and never you know, maybe go, my mother was teaching a Torah class for five years to the same group of people, South Africans, my family's South African, my dad, my mom's French, she's teaching them. And after a while, she's like, guys, have you ever, have you changed anything? And they're like, they agreed that for one week, they would go from lobster to like, just crab, like that week. And my mother's like, I'm done. She actually stopped the class. They're like, what do you mean? We love this class. She's like, 
You guys aren't changing at all. I will tell you, Daniel, and I just, we had this conversation. I was interviewed on another podcast called The Orthodox Conundrum, where we spoke about this for like an hour. And I'm jealous of some of these Chabad rabbis who have been convinced, some would say brainwashed, but have been convinced that all you have to do is get a Jew to do a mitzvah, irrespective of what happens after, it doesn't matter. We in the more Litvisha community doing outreach are very result-driven. And we're like, if that's so, 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 something else, so I, I, what's the point of it? So I would, I would say like this, that I don't look at outreach in the classic sense. I view our outreach as a kind of teaching of Torah to people who didn't have the opportunity. And you have intelligent people. They ask great questions. That's what keeps me at MG, the great questions. Never bored here. Fantastic. And answer the people's questions. And they're adults. And if they want to make a change, that's it. And if they want to know how to make a change, I'll help them. But that, I think that the key element is to honor the person's free will, which we didn't even talk about the free will topic. Honor the person's free will, honor their maturity, honor their intellect, answer their questions the best they can. And if you didn't, well, maybe well, the problem is not them, it's you. Right, so now we're getting very practical. I actually, this is a good way, we're going to finish this. But this is a really interesting, what they call in Hebrew, nafkamina, like a practical ramification of these two different views of mitzvah observance. Whether or not the mitzvah is intending you to reflect intellectually on a certain idea. And if you reflect on the idea, great. If you didn't, I don't know really what. You're doing. No, ideally, ideally. The... As opposed to the more Kabbalistic view, which is that, and you might call this magic, okay? But that when I do a mitzvah, because I'm following God, there's something, something changed. I just affected some change in myself and in the universe. That's what the Kabbalists teach. Every time a Jew does a mitzvah, you're literally raising, even if there was no kavanah, there was no understanding, you plug that, that plug in into the wall, you just zap electricity. Something just happened. That is a difference. Yeah, I think that is a difference. <laughs> and that's why um, it, it does come out in terms of the way Chabad rabbis will do outreach versus the way some other people will do outreach. Some are much more result-driven because they don't feel the mitzvah itself is significant. The mitzvah is just a means towards a greater end, whereas the Chabad, or more Kabbalistic approach, is more that there's something inherently changing metaphysically, even if you don't feel it. And, and Rav Penny won't like this at all, but he said also the, the idea that it's all for you means then it should be the person changing, whereas if I, the way I see it is it is for God to a certain extent, if you want to get into the Kabbalistic philosophy of Tainug Morkav, Ubilti Morkav, the idea of a will or a pleasure that's not based on you doing it, meaning God doesn't lose something by you not doing it. However, it does still bring pleasure. It's a pleasure that is God gets from us serving him and doing, and, and doing these mitzvot. So this idea of the power of a mitzvah, I think, also comes back to what you're saying in that respect. It's not just for right. you. So, yeah, obviously, you cannot give God any pleasure. Also, another thing I just want to say, like, I'll throw out a question. Does God have any feelings? No, thank you. Sociopathic. No, 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 God. He, no, he does. We now we do. But yet, you'll say. But the Torah says. But yet, I'm going to bring up the kash here. But yet, it says that the Torah says he loves the nation of Israel. Oh, have Israel. So just so just to clarify what that means, just to, we're going to give the full package over here tonight. Is the is the idea is that God does helps the Jewish people and helps individuals in a way that within our framework, it is perceived as a loving action. 
in our world, it's perceptive. God does not feel love, because that would mean he has changed. You know, he goes, that means you're talking about God has changed. Malachi says, I am God, I don't change. So therefore, you go from a state of neutrality to love. He has no, he, no, no body, no emotions, that's it. You know, so, you know, I hate to be the guy, you know, telling you there's no Santa Claus, but, uh, you know, the guys are, you know, you guys are over bar mitzvah already. Most, most consider I have a similar perspective that you're talking about, but, but, you are children of Hashem, your God. Does a mother care when her child's in pain? I think so. And that's multiplied on an infinite level for God. Now, how you want to define that pain, the, it, there's a beautiful in Tikkun Leil Shavuot, on the night of Shavuot, where you stay up all night learning, there's a, there's a story from Rabbi Yosef Karo, who authored the Shulchan Aruch, and Rabbi Shlomo Al-Kabetz, and they were all in Salonika. And that night, there was a baskel that spoke through Rabbi Yosef Karo. It's a whole thing. But the story talks about how God says, if you knew my pain, the Shechina is in Gullus. And we can, a whole other discussion of what does it mean, the Shechina and the, the divine presence and the way God met, uh, manifests in different ways. But there is an aspect, God chooses to care and God does feel, um, the, the, whatever pain we're in, the Shechina feels. And, and that's why, according to the Magad of Mezuch, when you pray, you shouldn't be praying for yourself. You should be praying that that so to speak, the Shechina is whole, that the only reason darkness exists in the world is because the world is in exile, because God is not revealed in the world. If that was true, we had a revelation of God in the world, nothing bad could happen, nothing could exist. It all stems from there. So, yeah, different perspective, I would say, on that. All right, um, guys, thank you. Some questions, comments, yes. Um, so you're having this wonderful conversation about Kavana, about intention of doing this vote. I'm wondering how you would both answer the question for someone who's coming to Judaism, um, the point of prayer is, or the goal of prayer is. The point of prayer is, is you can is actually built into the very Hebrew word, lehit palel. Palel means to judge. Lehit palel means to judge yourself by standing before your Creator and recognizing that you are a created being, and you focus your mind on God's kindness to you and to the Jewish people. God's, God's actions that are in our world uh, are perceived as kindness. Thank you for that clarification. Uh, just speaking a little bit, I'm allowed, I'm allowed to use a metaphor. Um, <laughs> that by recognize, first of all, it's bringing God, recognizing God on a regular basis because the natural, the natural of the egotistical part of man is not to think about God unless you're in a crisis. When you're in the room and you're waiting for the doctor's report about cancer, then some people uh, think about God. Here, three times a day, we think about God. We praise God for his kindness to the whole world and for us, the Jewish people. And, us. and B, if we are become transformed with that, and we become a different person via the prayer, he will record. And we say that we say, we, I need these needs, wisdom, forgiveness, uh, health, uh, financial stability, so I can be a better servant of God. He may grant that to you because you have now been you're now a different person uh, through the activity. So simply, prayer a tool of personal transformation. If you are successful, you're a different person than you were at the that you started, and therefore you're worthy of a different destiny. The four parts of the Amida, of the Shacharit prayer is according to Kabbalah's correspond to four worlds, four worlds that we ascend, and when we reach the fourth, Atsilus, which is one, we whisper, we do the Amidah silently, God is close. The Amidah comes from, the silent prayer comes from Chana. 
Hana, when she's at the, the ark in Shiloh, she's in Shiloh, she's wordless, she's whispering prayer and crying and, and asking for a child. And Ailey, the high priest, the calling Godel sees her and says, excuse me, miss, are you drunk? She'd never seen that before. She says, no, my master, I'm not drunk. I am, I, I'm, I'm in broken and I, and I, I want a child and, and I want to dedicate him to the temple. And when he hears that, he says, you should be blessed. You have a child. She has Shmuel, Samuel, one of the greatest prophets ever. The Rebbe has a beautiful teaching on this. And he says, Ailey knew she wasn't drunk. He wasn't like, uh, oh, are you? He said, are you drunk on your own needs? Asking for a child is a beautiful thing to ask for. You're not asking for a Porsche. Nothing wrong with that. But you're not asking for a Porsche. You're asking for a, for a child. You've been childless. He said, but in this holy place, the ark, the holiest place on earth, this is not the place to ask for any needs. It's simply a time to... Um, to, to pray, to connect to God, to ask God what he needs. She says, you're wrong. I'm not asking for a child for me. I'm going to dedicate this child to the temple. I'm asking for my needs because I know that is what's going to fulfill my mission on earth and bring Hashem into this world and make this world a dwelling place for God. That's why I'm praying. He says, oh, if that's the case, then I'm wrong and you should be blessed. And to me, that is what prayer is. Prayer is co-creation. It's co-creating a new reality with God. And we don't have time to get into the Kabbalah of it, but prayer is not just a bunch of words that some rabbis put together. The prayers we have, these the sages that put it together, like Mordechai from the Purim story, prophets, uh, the Anshay Knesset Agdola, these were incredible, mystical, and just incredible sages. They ordered the Hebrew letters, because just like we said, God spoke reality into being with the Hebrew language, Hebrew letters. These Hebrew letters help you connect back up. They help you ascend back up to the one to connect with God so that together with Kavana, of course, with that deep heart intention, with that emotion, you connect up and then you're able to send up and then you're able with God with these words to then intentionally bring down a new reality. To ask God for your needs, yes, but to ask for your needs when you pray because you want health and wealth and a family so that you can draw God into that reality. Of, like of diaspora and in a world where your parents 
you know, lived in, you know, might have, you know, I don't think communism or in a way that the way they were not allowed to practice religion and, and you know, let's say people are wanting these closer to that, to change a person where their family was different or something like that, or to change a person where their whole life would be lived a different way. It takes a lot to make that change. However, the teachings that they're getting from your mother or whoever, the impact that it does to the soul is very, very real. And as for whether that achieved a, you know, the result of specific things, that would be wonderful. But so, I'm not sure that that matters in large perspective of what it's doing to the mind and soul. So just briefly, our opinion is that, first of all, I told that to my mother, based what, that the power we've been talking about of just the class, just that moment of connection, and she has since restarted the class. So 100% um, agree with you. I will say we do believe there's an objective truth, not that each one is kind of choosing their Judaism. But yes, but, but I'm agreeing with you in that Judaism to me is a relationship, not a religion. So the everything you are doing, it's like say, oh, I only call my grandmother three times a year. I only go to Yom Kippur services. Well, you'd have a more intimate relationship and a closer connection if you went 200 days. Of, you, called your, you called your girlfriend a couple times a week than if you did it once a year. So it's not that one, every aspect you do of Judaism, if you keep an hour of Shabbat, there is a power in that hour, no question about it. It's not detracting. We're not, and that's, by the way, that's why I'm not a big fan of reform, conservative, orthodox, ultra-orthodox, Hasidic, progressive. I think there's observant and there's levels within that of how much, and of course, how you do it and what you go to, we could talk about you know, different, but not to like divide our Judaism. Into, no, that we've done this since ancient times. This is what reality is and how much we want to make it part of our lives and the way we want to 100% should be, is powerful in and of itself. Every aspect you do, I agree with you completely on, on that. Adam, yeah. Um, so I'm kind of curious to see your perspective on these two ideas. Uh, one is, how do you interpret the idea that on Yom Kippur they got here to the Kali Gadol and the cloud of smoke and the Holy of Holies? And the second question is how do you interpret the meaning of the 13 attributes of Baptist? Doesn't make Sure. Um, it doesn't say in the. Just repeat. Okay, so the question is um, two parts. Is one is that that as the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur and you would bring down a, uh, you bring a a a shovel of coals and put uh, incense and then create a whole cloud and you serve that God's present there. It doesn't say that. It's it's doesn't say that in the Torah. It just so. So he's that's he's in the most he's in the holies of holies. It is a place where he is absolutely thinking about God uh, in, in a complete way. And when he steps out, he immediately does a, a prayer. Uh, as far as your question, what is it? Was it mean the thirteen attributes of uh, of of uh, kindness uh, of, of passion? Hashem, Hashem, God, God, Kel Rachum Achan and Erechapayim Rav Chesed. We, these are these are really the reason why they're redemptive, is because these are the way that God does his his actions as perceived to us, and how do we become better people by being compassionate, slow to anger, truth, forgiving, and and that's how you become more godly, and that's really we say that throughout Yom Kippur because those are the things we have to work on. How do we really? Because it's it's not about. The, the, the prophets don't talk about yeah, the Jews are not keeping glad kosher. What do they talk about? You are ignoring the plight of the poor. 
of the orphan, of the widow. You're involved in idolatry, in, in, in religions not your own, or religions of your own making. We've got to go back to basics. And, and we, we, we talk about the uh, 13 attributes of God though, that's to educate us to become more godly, what we call uh, to imitate him. Just as he is called uh, uh, righteous, you have to be righteous. I have to be righteous. We all have to be righteous. Just as he is kind, we have to be kind. And these are areas we have to work on continuously because it's very hard for us. And that really is, the, and that's, the tran- that's part of the transformational experience of Yom Kippur. I want you to know we've gone full circle because Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, one of the greatest Kabbalists of the 16th century, has a book called Tomer Devora, which is how we can imitate and mimic God through the 13 attributes of mercy and the 10th Street Road of exactly what Rabbi Penny said of acting in the way that God acts. So it all came full circle. Um, thank you. Yes, Garth. So I wanted to pick up on the reference to mindfulness and Kavana. And how you were saying, Rabbi Pinkley, that for many Jews, uh, Jewish practice is habitual, it's rote. And um, so my my question is, um, how can mindfulness be better achieved in a Jewish world? And I, you know, so I, you know, I think about meditation. I think about how the mind spins, and the power of meditation to try and calm it down. And the Kotzka Rebbe says, where is God? God is where you let God in. And, and it seems to me that, that, um, that mindfulness is not emphasized at all in modern Orthodox religious practice, or meditation is not. It's very rare that you ever come across a rabbi who, an Orthodox rabbi who's well versed in Jewish meditation and can really teach you how to do it. And so my question is, why is that? And what can be done about it? That's an outstanding question. So there is the mindfulness, uh, which is part of the, the uh, practice of meditation. That I'm not, I'm not even speaking to that part. I'm talking about mindfulness that says that like I am, I am, I am present. Just let me just, let me just put it, let me just create, let me picture, let me paint a picture. I could just say it's Sukkot. We just finished the holiday of Sukkot. I got to eat lunch. I grab my lunch. I'm here at the Jewish Center. I step up into the sukkah. I make the blessing. Eat the lunch. I'm out. I bounce. I'm done. Did I get the did I get the halachic mitzvah point check? Chink chink. I did on a very basic level. What I mean by mindful is like, what am I about to do? What, just stopping for a second. What am I about to do? I'm about to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm part of expressing my, I'm dwelling in a sukkah. Why am I dwelling in a sukkah? The Torah says openly to remind us of God's providence of protecting the Jewish people in, in, in the desert. So I'm here, I'm, I'm doing a reenactment, if you will, in my sukkah to re-experience just a flavor of the, of the reality, the real reality of God and his providential relationship to the Jewish people. That even though that we have gone through tremendous travails, against all odds, we are here. So when you sit on that sukkah, on that relatively nippy afternoon, eating your lunch in the Jewish center, you may be eating that lunch there on 86th Street, but you're thinking about the relationship of God and providence to the Jewish people that has not, he has not left us for 3,500 years. And against all odds, we're here. We shouldn't be here. 
we should not be here. We say, and it just air, mimics what we say on the on the Seder. In every generation, they try to destroy us, but God protects us. And and so your act of sitting in the sukkah is an act of of, of expressing the freedom and the joy and the simcha that you are that you as part of a great nation are the beneficiary of God's kindness and providence. It's a different lunch. I guarantee it. Such an important question. Um, in New York, especially, there's so much noise. There's so much happening. And even if you're blessed somehow to have, find a silent moment, maybe you take a vacation to the Bahamas or something, you're sitting alone on the beach, you get a breath. Um, and in that moment, you now have another layer of the noise that's in your own head. And you have to go through all the chatter, all the mind talking. So it's very hard to drop into that soul we're talking about. The mystics say that the amount of your soul that you're aware of is like the amount of your body that's in your shoe. Very little, just my foot. That's the amount of your conscious awareness of your soul. The idea of meditation, the idea of mindfulness is to tap into the vast reservoir of the beauty that is your soul that is connected to God. And when you think of King David, when you think of the prophets, they were many of them were shepherds. Many of them were walking in the fields with their sheep and were contemplating the meaning of life and were reflecting. King David says, I think the most beautiful two words in all of Tanakh or Judaism, he says, Vani tefillah, and another place, Vani tefillati. It doesn't say I pray three times a day and then I'm done. It says I am prayer. Everything I do when I eat my, my lunch, when I take a breath, when I walk down, down the road, when I tend my sheep, I, am, I, am, I have intention that this is something that is making God happy, that is connecting myself to God, that this is a divine act. And as Rob Penny was talking about, having intention when you're doing any so knowing the reason behind it, taking a moment. You don't have to be like the Hasidim Roshonim that would take an hour before and an hour after every prayer just to get ready to prepare yourself. But instead of rushing into everything, you know, some Hasidim will go to mikvah. They'll go before they pray. Or maybe taking... Uh, just to be proud of this, big breathwork fan. I just started at the end of prayer, a breathing for like a minute, just closing my eyes because prayers, as lofty as it should be, many times I'm rushing to something or whatever it is, and I don't actually have the right intention. So I try to just sit with my tefillin and just take a moment and set intention for the day and just connect. So I think that idea throughout your day, finding moments or whatever you're doing to, it's not that complicated always. We can go deep into Jewish meditation and Jewish mindfulness, but Simply, we said neshamaz neshima that your breath is your soul. That finding silence, just close your eyes for a minute, a couple times a day, and just breathe and realize that God is giving you that breath to stay alive, and and say thank you, Hashem, and feel that truly. Thank you, God, for the gift of life today. I will do my best today to grow, and to do good. And that's all I have to do in life. How am I growing and becoming a better version of myself? And how am I impacting the world around me for the better, and making other people's lives better too? And that's it. Um, last question. Andrew. Um, so it seems like at least part of the root of the disagreement, at least from my, my, my view, is that uh, Rabbi Daniel talks a lot about this aspect of God being a being, and Rabbi Penny is very much about God being a principle. And these things can be in conflict because the principle doesn't change. A being connotates change. So it's a kind of a paradox. And right, Penny mentioned earlier about humility, about under, not being, being okay with not being able to understand certain things and understanding our limitations. 
So isn't when we reach the point of paradox, isn't that when we reach that point where we realize that we can't understand that it's possible for God to be both a being and a principle at the same time? And it doesn't seem like we come to the resolution that there really is no conflict here, and that the things kind of like symbolized by the symbol Aleph is that two things that seem as if they're actually in opposition in reality are part of a unity that is above our comprehension, that is before creation itself. So, so I'm trying to end on a very positive note. <laughs> so I think what I think what we are I think you heard two traditions of God tonight. Now I want to say God is a principle. He is a being. In other words, He exists. Can, in a certain sense, we can't say anything which I didn't even get into. We can't say anything positive about God. We we are forced to use language. That's part of the problem here. We're dealing with that which is beyond language and to use language. And the Torah helps us out because otherwise we'd have, here's the choice that the Torah solved. If you want to be absolutely true, you can't speak of anything about God because he, we can't know him. He's unknowable. So you can't say anything. So there should be no Torah. The Torah wrote in, in, in a way that we can get some idea, some sense, and that, that was the gift of the Torah to be able to articulate uh, God in a way, and plus the oral ought to understand in a deeper way for us to have a conversation that we're having tonight about God. But here, I think it's very, I don't want to, you know, we could, maybe there's somebody who could see a, an ultimate, you know, a, a ultimate, uh, you know, synthesis here. Uh, I'm being, to be honest, I'm a growing Jew. I hope everybody here as well. So I don't know where I'll be in 10 years, but I'm just saying this is my understanding and my research and my studies brought me to this point. And I think there's very, I think it's, I want to go back to the point of humility. I heard a beautiful statement by Rabbi Usher Weiss, who great, he's a current, he's a great posek, a great halakhic decisor. He says, who's the perfect Jew? How can we have, envision the perfect Jew? He says, in my mind, the perfect Jew has the following qualities. He has the mind of a Litvak, a Lithuanian Jew, but he has the heart of the Chassid. He has the love of the, of the land of Israel of a religious Zionist. He has the honor of Torah like a Sephardic Jew. He has the integrity and honesty of a Yekisha Jew. In other words, all, and I'll go further, I would add to him, he didn't say this, I would say those who appreciate, who, who engage in Tikkun Olam, like the conservative reform movement Jews, yeah. I would say like this, we can learn from all Jews. Every community, no community has it down. We, we've not entered, entered into the Messianic era. Everybody has, every community has certain virtues, which you can study and learn. And the goal here is to get the very best of everybody and be the best version of yourself. And that's all you can do. I want to thank you so much. Thank you, Rabbi Penny. Thank you. Just to, cl- just to close up, I love that. that what Rabbi Penny just said was amazing, and I, I really resonate with that idea that God, don't limit God to one. You know, if you're Sparty, if you're Hasidic, God must be in my camp. No, we're all included fragments. of We can learn from all, all each, from each other, the big teaching of the Baal Shem as well. Um, and... I can't get into it now. The idea, of course, Kabbalah, God doesn't change. God before the universe is the same God after the universe. Kabbalah goes to great lengths and Hasidus to explain the idea that 
God's essence is beyond the finite light that is changing and what God is in an infinite way. We can't get into that now. There was a story of a chassid, Rav Garari, that was asked by another chassid, uh, explain to me the essence of God. And as he opened his <laughs> mouth, he slapped him across the face. But you can't, you can't describe, um, you can't describe uh, the essence of God. Um, but um, the, the, the term in Yiddish for God, anybody know what it is? Abishter. The one who is above, above any of our description, our understanding. So how do we put it all together? I'll just close off with uh, Rav Zalman Guppen, who's a very one of the most famous mashpim uh, Hasidic teachers in Israel. I went to uh, from Jerusalem to Kfar Chabad for a summer just to learn from him, and uh, he was very special. He is very special. And uh, one time he said he t- taught in Hebrew, and he and sometimes Yiddish, and he said that there was an old Hasidic song that went like this. It's a little different to Beyonce. It went, Leisasar panuimine, leis machshava tvisa be. Leisasar panuimine, leis machshava tvisa be, which means, Leisasar panuimine in Aramaic means there is no place devoid of God. But then, Leis machshava tvisa be means no thought can grasp God at all. There is no place devoid of God. It's right here. But no thought can grasp even a taste of what that. So I think. It sounds like a contradiction in terms, but there's an idea, at least from the mystical point of view, that you're never alone, that God's presence is around everywhere, and yet it's going to be a forever journey to um, God transcends our understanding. They're both true at the same time. Thank you guys all for coming to listen to us. Let's give it up for uh, Rabbi Daniel, Rabbi Kinney. That was really, really amazing. Thank you all for coming. Um, this is really very, very special. We'd love to do this more often. And wow, it's only quarter to 10. That's, that's pretty unbelievable.